I'm Richie Ballsba. I started KISS 108 in Boston in 1978. The founder of Pyramid Radio. I've been in the radio business, or was in the radio business for a long time. I sold my company in 1996 to what is now Clear Channel, and I've been a gentleman of leisure, and I can't think of anything more fun to do than to take a walk with Buzz and talk about radio. Welcome to Taking a Walk, an excursion to converse, connect, and catch up at a cool location with some of the most interesting people you can find. Here's Buzz Knight. Richie Balsba, it's so great to be here in Brookline, Mass, to take a walk with you. So nice to see you. Nice to see you too, Buzz. It's been a while. Uh, I know we would run into each other at uh, probably industry events in Boston over the years, but one of the real joys for me for uh, the Taking a Walk series is there's people I know but I don't know enough, well enough, and being able to connect and take a walk uh, with uh, old friends and make new friends is really kind of exciting. So thanks you for uh, for having me. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I, um, I've actually been trying to kind of get my story out in a way. I've, uh, I've been in the middle of, of putting together a television show uh, with Mark Wahlberg, which has gone nowhere fast uh, just based on his his uh, uh, schedule and, and my lack of like uh, pushing it, and uh, and I've written a lot of things, and I've I've really I really am much better at talking about things than, than writing them down, because I'm certainly not a writer. I'm a talker though. <laughs> you have uh, built this tremendous legacy. It's an amazing uh, story. Uh, we know some of the same people. I know some of the people who worked uh, for you. Everybody always uh, when they talk about Richie. Uh, you bring a smile to their face uh, to this day, and um, you built um, an amazing company in Pyramid. Um, tell me about culture, first of all, when you thought of uh, building Pyramid. Well, first of all, you couldn't pay me a better compliment than to say that I bring, bring my name brings a smile to people's faces, because that's what this business is all about to me. And I mean that. I'm not just saying that because it sounds like the right thing to say. I mean that as long as as long as my legacy or, or what I leave behind in radio is that I was somebody that people loved to work with and I, and I made them happy and they enjoyed going to work every day, then I did the right thing. Um, Culture-wise, you know, it's interesting. I started out as a radio salesman uh, for the night, night quality broadcasting stations, Norman Knight, Scott Knight, at little stations in, in Portsmouth, Roger, or Portsmouth, Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, Fitchburg, um, Worcester, and Fall River, Mass. And, you know, although they were smaller markets, what we did is his, uh, Scott and I had our offices in Boston. We formed this this ring around Boston thing where we sold against the Boston radio stations. So I thought my radio stations that I worked for were the biggest thing in the world. You know, meanwhile here we're selling against BZ and RKO and all the, all the giants. Uh, and I never, I just loved what I did. I loved radio um, so much. Never really, I was always happy where I was. And all of a sudden, I started getting unsolicited calls from people about, you know, being a sales manager, general sales manager in Boston. And uh, I, I, I played with the idea, toyed with the idea. I got a, a opportunities to go to other markets. And then I had this really strange um, phone call from a lawyer in Washington, D.C. named Jason Shrinsky. And he informed me that he was the the uh, lawyer, the broadcasting lawyer for Cecil Heftel, who was a Democratic congressman from the great state of Hawaii. And Cecil Heftel had just bought BCN in Boston. 
and had heard about me and wanted he wanted to come up to talk to me about being the general manager. Now, I had never been a sales manager of a big radio station. I was working with a small group, and it was kind of a leap uh, going from being uh, the national sales manager of the night-quality radio stations to being a general manager of what was BCN. Well, I took the interview. Uh, Jason Shrinsky came up from Washington on the, on the behest of uh, Cecil Heftel and interviewed me, and we just hit it off. So he hired me, I think a little prematurely, because he hadn't even hired a president of the broadcasting company. And lo and behold, I went into Norman Knight and resigned and told him about my great opportunity, and the deal fell through for BCN. So all of a sudden, I was like, in a, you know, up the creek without a paddle, as they say. <laughs> so I was like, I didn't know what was going to happen next. I, I said, what, what did I do? I just gave up something I love for an opportunity that didn't happen. Well, they told me not to worry. They were going to buy another radio station. Everything was going to be fine. And th this may be a long prelude to where, to my culture, but the, there, there's a reason for it, method to my madness. And uh, so then they, they called me, and they were very excited. They bought WROR, which also fell through. So they said, not to worry, we're going to pay you, you're going to be fine. And I get the phone call, okay, now we got the deal done. We just bought this radio station in Medford, Mass., WWEL. Now, I lived in Boston, I had never heard of it, <laughs> which, was, which was kind of a, a telltale sign. I, I was like, I thought, oh my God, my life's come to an end. I went from this group of radio stations that were, that were prestigious to, to a radio station I never heard of as the general manager. Boy, was this going to be a screw-up of major proportions. Anyway, as it turns out, um, I, th I then had the opportunity. I mean, I had this. I was going to take over this radio station in AM, FM, in Medford that basically was out of 34 radio stations in Boston. Uh, the FM was rated number 33. And the AM was like 34. The, the combined share of the two of them was like about a 0.4 of 100% of the market. And the uh, FM was uh, beautiful music. And the AM was a simulcast of beautiful music, um, and it was you know it was in this this cement cinder block building in Medford. I'll never forget the first time I went there as the new general manager to visit it. It, it was horrifying, um, and I said, "Well, I'm going to make the best of it." The only the, the the thing that really happened was because of all the screw ups and because I had you know put myself in the line, I was given the ability to do with the radio station kind of what I wanted. I mean, there's nowhere to go but up. And uh, I, had, in, the, in the meantime, had worked with Scott Knight, and, and Scott was just a wonderful mentor and a wonderful guy. And Norman Knight, and Norman was like a slave driver. And, you know, we had to go in every Saturday, and we had to be in before he got in at, like, he was in at 6.30, so we had to be there at 6. It was kind of foolish, but, but you know, it was learning. It was like, you know, like the Marines, I guess, kind of like boot camp. And what I really did is I learned so much of what not to do from what he did, from what Norman Knight did, and I basically took on the personality of Scott Knight, who was just a great guy, and I decided that I, wasn't gonna, I was never going to treat people like that. I was going to be more of a person who was like a partner of theirs rather than somebody that, that they worked for. So my, my main goal when I was taking over this radio station in Medford was to do something exciting and to hire people that were really young and dynamic and, and kind of were in the, into the same thing as, as I was. Uh, so as it turns out, I went, uh, I went into the station for my maiden voyage, my trip. And uh, at that time, they had hired a president who was not thrilled that I was already previously hired. He couldn't hire his guy, but it was tough luck for him because the deal was done. 
And so we went in and we walked through and met the general manager, met the different personnel. And in this little office in the back, a little, it was, there was no windows, it was by the engineering office, there was this guy and he was sitting behind this little desk and it was Arnie Woo Woo Ginsburg. And I, I mean, he to me was like an icon in Boston, you know, the venture car hop, everything else. I mean, Arnie, just a brilliant guy. He was a chief engineer, a general sales manager, a general manager. He did everything in radio for RKO. Never really got great credit, but so when I saw him in there, uh, he wasn't being paid. They just let him have an office. He was kind of like kicked to the curb in, in radio. And so after we made the tour, I went back. I said, can, can I meet with you afterwards? And he said, sure. So no, and, and a little bit prior to that, I had actually made one hire. I went down to ILD. We were on the third floor of uh, uh, the fourth floor of the Senesta building in, uh, on, on Commonwealth Avenue in ILD. WILD was on the floor below. And Sonny Joe White was the young program director. And I, and I loved soul music. I loved black music. And so I knew I wanted to do a disco radio station. I wanted to do something that was rhythmic and fun. And so I hired Sonny basically before without even any, you know, approval from anybody else in the company. So Sonny was already on board. I have this guy, Arnie Ginsberg. So I go in to see Arnie. I say, hey, Arnie, would you come and work for me as my operations manager? I'm like 29 years old, 30 years old. I think it was 29. I've never run a radio station. You've done everything. I mean, you can be my mentor. You can be my right-hand guy. And here's what I'm thinking of doing. And he, his eyes lit up. It was really exciting. So the birth of, of, of what was going to be the new radio station in Medford, took took you know hold that day um all in a matter of that day pretty much well i knew before what i wanted to do when i hired sonny but i i, I kind of when i when arnie when i got arnie to uh to graciously come on board to be excited well i mean he wasn't making any money he was walking in working in an office that was four-sided cinder block i guess anything would have been a, a step up <laughs> but but he uh, he got very excited about it he he got rejuvenated about his broadcasting and and so we had our little meeting. I said, what I want to do is I want, I want to do a disco radio station. And it was not kind of near the end of disco or certainly near the waning hours. And WBOS in Boston was a, radio, it was a powerhouse disco radio station. But they just weren't that good, I didn't think. So I said, well, here's the idea. The idea is to do disco. And, we're, and we'll kind of like blend it into a top 40 kind of thing. We'll kind of like slowly blend it. Every, they got on board, everybody got on board with it, and I said, so Arnie and, and Sonny and I sat down, I said, look, we got to come up with some great call letters. Well, Arnie found WXKS, KISS, you know, X for the KISS and the whole thing. He found the call letters, got to give Arnie 100% props for that. And so when I went to Cecil F. Tell and the guy who was the president, Tom Hoyt, told him, I, oh, I had already hired a program director, I had hired an operations manager, and by the way, I have new call letters, and here's what we're going to do. They almost, their heads blew off. <laughs> Uh, no research, Richie, right? To no, do no, this. no research. Like, just it was, gut. It's it was a total, like, total it was gut. Gut. Wow. And and <laughs> what? Well, so Mike, the I had that's that was the culture that I wanted to develop right there. You look at Sonny Joe White, Arnie Ginsberg, changing things without really getting any approval from the from the uh, ownership. That was the culture that I wanted to have. Kind of a little bit. I mean, you were never going to be a rebel like BCN. You know, those guys were like that. that that's the, what they lived on. That was their reputation. But I was going to do it in a different way, right? A little more of a mainstream way. Yeah. So uh, it was kind of too late for Heftel or for Tom Hoyt or for anybody else to, to, to you know, to go crazy. So what they did is actually they hired uh, Kent Burkhardt, you know, from Burkhardt Abrams, to kind of hold my hand, or so they thought, because they didn't. They thought I was just doing things that were over my head. Well, he was a non-issue. I mean, he didn't. He he showed up and made his big, big, you know, 
consulting fee from Heftel, but he really didn't help us with anything. <laughs> so, so going forward, it was Sonny Joe White and, and Arnie Ginsberg and I. We got the new call letters, WXKS KISS 108. And so, um, I mean, this could be a story that lasts forever. There's so many details of so many people that were involved. But I had, from my previous days, I had a real good relationship, a very strong relationship with an advertising guy named John Pearson, Pearson McDonald. And he was a creative whiz. He was this really creative guru. And so, I, you know, I told him what we were doing, and he came up with this big black billboard with the big red lips, KISS, and a commercial with a girl who turned around and blew a kiss and the whole thing. And KISS 108 overnight was born. And in all, you know, I, I think I tend to over, you know, never, never let a good lie, lie get in the way of a good story, but I think that it's more of a fib. I, I say we went from being 32nd, 34th, you know, 33rd and 34th in the market to first overnight. It took about six months, so it wasn't overnight. But basically, KISS, with all we did, just went through the roof. What an amazing story, and thinking about the way um, business is run, and certainly radio is, that, uh, you know, you need research, you need yeah. lawyers, you need a corporate structure to sign off. You walked in and sized it up, and it took on a momentum and a life of its own, it sounds like. Yeah, it, 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 it did. I, I, I can't really say there was brilliance. I think there was a lot of, lot of timing and good luck, too, and you know, things that had good fortune and the right people. But um, a couple of things that happened. I made a deal you know, based on having really totally pissed off the guy that owned the thing and the, and the president uh, that you know, everything I did was based on revenues. And he had some ideas of revenues, and I and I, I took a very very low salary, but I took high, big bonuses based on revenues that which he thought were just unattainable, and I blew him away. And actually, the reason I was able to buy Kiss as my first radio station is because he owed me so much money from the uh, from the uh, bonuses that I had accrued from from my contract that he kind of had no choice. Uh, he made me president of his company at other radio stations, and then I wound up buying Kiss. But that's a story that goes down the road. But anyway, so we went on the air. Sonny Joe White was really the only personality in the morning show. We had mixers, and then these guys didn't even weren't even personalities. They just would mix records. So it was disco during the disco era. And then we gradually built a staff, and uh, we were everywhere. Um, the one thing that this guy that owned the radio station, Cecil Heftel, did, he was known as being this great promoter. And I was able to get him to um, uh, to give me a lot of money to promote with. We gave a million dollars away twice the first year. But now it was it was fifty thousand dollars a year for twenty years. It was an annuity, so it was really like kind of a mirror, you know, uh, a mirror job because it wasn't really giving away a million bucks. But it sure sounded good on the air. I was going to say I remember <laughs> Heftel yeah. from that the million oh. dollars uh, probably elsewhere yeah. probably he, started he, here. He, he and did then... it in Y100 in Miami when right. he, he had. But he, you know, but he he agreed to go along with that. It was so successful, and the radio station did so well, and the revenues were just kicking that you know we did it a second time, and then everybody in the market, well, the whole market was trying to react to what we were doing because our ratings went like through the roof. They started giving away money and stuff. So when they did that, then I gave away a couple houses. That was our next thing. We just kind of stayed ahead of it, uh, ahead of the flow. But was there like a thing though, like, hey, we just did this big promotion three weeks ago. Next promotion, we have to top ourselves. I mean, was that the attitude? Um, in, yes and no. Yes, it was uh, always the attitude to try to do something bigger and better. Um, and basically, it's kind of funny. You you're, you've segued this thing perfectly. Um, it, it really kind of was the reason that I created the KISS concert, which is now basically the iHeartRadio concert. 
after giving away you know money and houses and cars and all those things and everybody else in the market following suit I, I, I kind of there was like it was just everybody doing the same thing and so I, I wanted to come up with something I wanted to do something that money couldn't buy so I created this unbelievable you know party a concert where you brought basically Hollywood to Boston and that was that was the birth of the kiss concert and uh, it started out small. It started out at uh, Boston, Boston, the nightclub um, on Lansdowne Street with the, fir the first four acts that I had when I first put the radio station on the air. And I had to actually beg people to come in from the streets to go to this thing. <laughs> <clears throat> the headliner was the Tramps, Sister Sledge, Tasha Thomas, who was in The Wiz, Sarah Dash, who was in, in LaBelle, and a group called Machine. There, but for the grace of God, go I. That song that was. Yep. Uh, uh, anyway, that was my big. That was my big lineup, and obviously, it's manifested itself into the biggest show now. Even though I don't own it, it's still an adjunct to that. Even when I left, when I sold the company, it was the biggest show. We had to have 25 acts. Everybody from Aerosmith to Prince to Madonna, they all played the play the Kiss concert. Well, and as somebody who came to the <coughs> Boston market in um, 1992, okay. um, it was all anybody talked about when the Kiss concert was 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 happening. Um, it was the buzz of the market. Uh, it was the hottest ticket. It was, do you know someone over at Kiss? Can you get you know tickets? You know, I want to go, or my kids want to go. So it it really uh, had this gargantuan, and still does this gargantuan, yeah. you know, image. Um, how did you round up, um, you know, the the label community to <coughs> be so helpful? And uh, was there anybody that ever came to mind that? You just couldn't get, or you almost got, or you had to work hard to get for a Kiss concert. Yeah, a lot, almost everyone. I mean, the groups as they got bigger, they 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 didn't want to play a concert for nothing. Now, by the way, I didn't pay the groups. Uh, you know, iHeartRadio, everybody else pays for these groups. They're basically tours now. What I did was I would basically, you know, and this is, I guess, it's borderline plugola, but it really wasn't because basically it would be, I, you know, I just say, look, you know, you if this group plays our. Our, you know, Kiss is mo one of the most, two or three most important radio stations in the country for breaking music. If they play the Kiss concert, you you got a pretty good shot at getting the records played. You know, I mean that that kind of a thing. Um, basically, uh, and you know, the record companies would see the um, uh, see that working out. We had a, this guy Jerry Brenner was the independent promoter, and he, you know, obviously Kiss became a big money maker for him as an independent. And so he would work his end with the record companies. I would work with the, with the you know, I, I got to know all the record label heads. I got to know all the managers of the major groups. And, you know, it's interesting. You had asked a question a little while ago about doing something bigger and better. Well, the KISS concert became that bigger and better thing. And nobody, nobody could ever equal it because it was our, our thing. That, you know, these record companies and the art weren't going to do it for another radio station. You know, we created it. We did it for the Genesis funds. There was a charity. <laughs> and they were they were you know, they became a part of it. So groups actually would call me and managers and say, "Can we play the Kiss concert?" Which was bizarre. I mean, one one notable was was Eddie Money. He came up here himself and he went to Berkeley and put together a band to play. And you know, it, it just was one of those kind of things. But that's what became bigger and better. So so during the you know the couple months up to the Kiss concert, and then I created the Jingle Ball to do it another time. 
But um, what what really worked was that it, nobody could compete with that. You could give away whatever you wanted to. And nobody you couldn't you couldn't get tickets for the Kiss concert. And for everybody who was in in the the biz or mm-hmm. associated, it was known as this five star event. That yeah. if you were invited inside the tent, you just had the time of your life. And and you know, by the way, I invited you know Oedipus and Tony Berardini and all those guys too, <laughs> just just to watch the, just to watch the look on their face. You yeah. Know? But yeah, it, it but it it became really kind of an event. It became a happening. It became a good charitable event. It, it was something everybody looked forward to every year. Was anybody and, obstinate and say I can't play this thing? And did you finally convince him? And who was it? Well, I mean, the the the, the greatest showdown I ever had. <clears throat> uh, there, I could tell you a million stories. The, the yeah, there's two. The the one one is the story about one that didn't happen, and the other is a story about one that did. The first one was. I was out at I was out I'm a, I love to play golf and I was out at Pebble Beach at this little golf mini golf tournament that a couple guys had put together I played every year and I had just convinced the guy who was a manager of Huey Lewis Bob Brown to to play the Kiss concert and I had just um, I think it's it, it's after Sonny Joe White had left and and uh, Steve Rivers was was the new uh, program director I'm kind of trying to get my timelines right. But I was out there, and, and I said, look, Steve, you know, Huey Lewis is going to play the concert. Bob Brown is, like, after, like, for years of, like, fighting to get him to do it. And, you know, he was huge then. Um, so they got the record coming out. So let's make sure that we put, you know, give it consideration because, you know, he's, he's doing this thing. I'm pretty sure it's because he knows he's got a record coming out. And so I was out there, and, of course, Steve Rivers didn't play the record, didn't add the record. And this guy called me and yelled at me and told me I was the Hi. I, I was the biggest liar that ever lived, and you know I wasn't a man of my word, and he wasn't going to play the concert. Da, da, da. At that point, I had 13 radio, 14 radio stations, so I pulled his records on every one of the radio stations. We had a fight; it was monumental. I wouldn't play Huey Lewis under any circumstances, although I should have. But it was just one of those like personal vendetta things because it, right away I said it was my fault. I was playing golf, da, 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 and it didn't matter. But the, the one that's my greatest story, I think, that is that my, my favorite artist uh, that I can listen to day and night is Luther Vandross. And Luther, his voice is, I mean, it's just ridiculous, I think. I mean, he can sing like an instrument plays, like every instrument plays. And I, you know, wanted Luther Vandross more than anything for the KISS concert. Now, it wasn't that he was a huge KISS, you know, artist. It, that was kind of for me, for the Ritchie concert. <laughs> So Polly Anthony was the president of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Epic Records, and she was a very good friend of mine. And she said, Richie, I would do anything for you. We can't get Luther to do anything. He is, he is actually, he's just a, a, he's a pain. And, and he has his entourage around, and we keep asking him to do things, and, and he just says, no, 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 no. I said, well, look, I'll come to New York. Can you just get me a 15-minute, 20-minute meeting with him, a coffee, a cocktail, whatever? Just so I can meet him, that will appease me. If he says to me, no, he can't do it, all right, I, I won't bother you anymore. So anyway, she calls me, and she said, look, she said, Luther's going to be in the office. I've, I've convinced him to come walk over to the Four Seasons. They were on 55th, and, and the Madison Four Seasons was right there a block away. I convinced he and his manager and his handler, whatever it was, and me to come over and have coffee with you at the Four Seasons. So I meet Luther there, and Luther's got, right away, he's got such attitude. Um, Luther, Luther was very effeminate and very in his in his actions and his life, and he he had the kind of like he would like you know make make these gestures that were just like 
put, putting you off, like kind of thing. And he, you could tell that he wanted to be there less than he wanted to have his teeth drilled. <laughs> and so he's there and he's kind of listening. He's not even looking at me. He's looking the other way, looking left and right. And uh, so I said, Luther, look, you're my favorite artist. We play your music. We play everything. I, I've done these concerts. I've had, you know, everybody. I listed the groups that have played. I said, uh, it's my, my, my goal to have Luther Vandross play my KISS concert. And I said, what would it take for you to play the KISS concert? And he said, I'll play the KISS concert if you get the Boston Pops to be my backup band. Now, as luck would have it, I had been to dinner with Robin Brown, who was then the manager of the Four Seasons in Boston, and a very close friend of mine. And he happened to be very close friends with Keith Lockhart. And we had had a dinner at the hotel just less than a month prior to that. Keith was there, and I hadn't met Keith before, but we were seated next to each other. It was a small dinner, like six or eight of us. And we were talking about, he, he knew everything about radio and about Kiss, and he was, you know, he was very, very charming and very uh, engaging. And so I was, you know, telling him, we were, we were having our conversation. And he said, look, he said, you know, Rich, he said, I said, you've got to come to the concert. He said, I'd love to. So he gave me his, his number and everything else. So I'm sitting at the Four Seasons and I'm thinking, huh, this is kind of interesting. So I excused myself for a moment and I went in the lobby and I called, uh, I called Robin. I said, Robin, do you think that if I called Keith, I told him the story? He said, well, he gave you his number. So I called him and he got in the phone. So I tell him what's going on, and he goes, when is the date of it? And I tell him, he goes, well, we'll do that. So I walk back to Luther with the phone, and I hand him the phone, and he looks at me, and it's Keith Lockhart saying that they'll play the KISS concert. Luther couldn't got, could not get out of it. It cost me a gazillion dollars to have the Boston Pops practicing in the ballroom of the Four Seasons. It didn't matter. I beat Luther. It was the coolest thing in the world. He oh, never played the concert. So that was the best. That's the priceless. best story. That's, that's the best story. That's priceless. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, and, and, it, and the concert was spectacular. Uh, just as an adjunct, there's two, there's two PSs to the story. Uh, one is I could actually tell more stories about artists and the things with the KISS concerts. Not, not more, but as many as I could about the radio days in, in terms of uh, the people. And boy, do I have some stories about Sonny Joe White and all those characters that worked for me. They were incredible. But um, the, f the first story is that, that he, you know, he, when he was in Boston, everybody stayed at the Four Seasons. He would not stay where any of the artists stayed. Now, mind me, we had like, we had Bon Jovi, we had all these big artists, but Luther was bigger than, in his mind, was bigger than them. Luther had just become skinny Luther. He had lost 100 pounds. He was always going up and down, which may have contributed to his stroking out uh, the whole thing, but I'm not sure of that. But, but he was skinny Luther. So we had a dinner planned at Sansi, and Luther was, <laughs> the record company made him do this now at this point, after all the kind of the, the things we did for him. And he was staying at the Ritz, the old Ritz, and, and so we had this thing at Sansi. We were a little bit late because getting everybody you know, organized, and he was sitting there alone, very upset. And... Uh, my daughter, my little, my little girl Lauren was at that point I think 12 years old and so he wound up sitting next to her. She was really the only person he would talk to. He didn't want anything to do with us. Uh, he wouldn't eat anything. And so the chef, I had the chef come over, Billy Poirier, I'll never forget, and, uh, and he comes over and he says, Luther, I'll make you like some fish with, you know, like no butter, I'll give me, we'll put it in whatever, and no, 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 I can't have that. I think he had some lettuce or something. Anyway, but he and Lauren, my daughter, got, they kind of like hit it off. So he asked Lauren to actually pick the wardrobe. He had, he played for 40 minutes and he had four 
wardrobe changes. <laughs> I mean, he put four different jackets. I mean, the guy was unbelievable. He would talk about a, a total diva. Oh my God, he was unreal. So anyway, so my daughter basically, you know, he embraced Lauren and that, and he was somewhat happy doing the thing. The show was just spectacular. I mean, he sang five hits, four or five hits, and he had a different glittery outfit on every time. It was, it was beautiful. Um, but the thing that's kind of the PS to the story is that he wouldn't eat, you know, wouldn't eat or wouldn't do anything. It was a different hotel from everybody else. So I get the bill, and the way that it worked was the record companies uh, paid for like the transportation and, and uh, the, the airfare, or whatever, and I'd pay for the hotels, and you know, and the food and the things that while they were in Boston and the transportation to and from the venue. Pretty sweet deal for me, actually, when you think about it, since we weren't paying the con- the uh, artists. And uh, I got the bill from the Ritz, and I look, and I go, what the heck is going on here? So I look, and it's like, I knew what the room rate was, and it was just like two or three times the room rate. I couldn't understand it. So I asked for the backup, and I got the backup, and lo and behold, he had had like 30 Snickers bars, 20, 20 walnuts. He, he ate everything but the playing cards and the ice, cream tra- ice, and the ice cube trays from the, uh, from the hotel. <laughs> It was unbelievable. I mean, he was, and unfortunately, I think I think he was a closet eater. But he was, and is, to me, the greatest singer oh, ever. That's spectacular. But that, you know, so wow. those, that, so I, I went off the radio key. But that but that it kind of is an is a you know a, 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 from the from the, the reason I did the Kiss concerts and then you know because I'm so into music and I got to know all the record people and I got to know the artists so well. Um, I just, you know, I mean, they became part for the audience, part for me. You know, I had groups like Katie Lang. Katie Lang, I'll never forget, she's sitting in her bus. She goes, well, why did you want me? I said, because you, you know, you, 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 have, you have a hit. The song is going to be a hit, and we're going to play the heck out of it because it's great. And she went out and played and tore it up. And, and I saw her at one of the Grammys years later, and she ran up to me and hugged me. I mean, it, it was kind of crazy because I made some really great relationships. Uh, from a lot of artists and some that weren't so great, you know. So um, when deregulation hit the radio industry, that's kind of when you got out. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I had, you know, in the early '90s, I had I had owned uh, I owned stations in in uh, Boston, uh, Rochester, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Charlotte, and Chicago, and Chicago was off balance sheet. It was like another entity. And in the early 90s, the, uh, the interest rates went way, through, went way up. And although we were in compliance in terms of paying, you know, paying our uh, interest and our, our debt service, they, ha- they changed their, their multiples of what you were, your, debt to, uh, your debt ratio should be. And one of the banks tried to get me to sell the Chicago radio station, which I was not willing to do, to become in compliance. And they were just flexing their strength. They weren't... They weren't a bank that I had a very bad relationship with. They were not like you know, they have meetings with me and I'd show up late for the meetings. I just I didn't I didn't like them and they didn't like me, and they, and they showed me by the fact that they kept squeezing for me to do this. So what I did is I wound up refinancing the company just to get them out of it. And in refinancing the company, the way that I what I had to give up for the refinancing basically was a, a it was a sliding scale. And what happened was then deregulation happened. And I was going to have the ability, because I had this, this kind of big money company behind me, to go out and purchase a lot of radio stations. But the way my deal and my management deal worked, we were growing at a very slow rate while they were growing like astronomically with the way that the way the deal was you know, structured. So I went to them and I said, look, I know that you're excited about deregulation. We can buy radio stations everywhere. We can double up everywhere, triple up. 
but we got to have to change the deal because we made a deal under different circumstances. They said, well, we can't change the deal. We have partners. And I said, well, then we're going to sell the company. And they go, well, you can't sell the company. I said, well, read the, read the, um, the agreement. I said, I specifically had that put in just for something like this. Well, they thought that they played chicken with me. They thought I wouldn't sell. And I did because I wasn't going to work for them. I was going to work for myself. And uh, quite honestly, uh, in retrospect, um, I think that because of what deregulation did to radio, I'm kind of glad that I got out. But I would have loved to have seen as long as the, 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 the playing field was level with this, with this group that I had behind me, what we could have done. And I think we could have done a lot better than Clear Channel did hate to say that but true well so you led into where I was headed which yeah. was any regrets so you you were reading my yeah mind I have regrets that. of course I mean I, I, I you know I regret what it I regret I miss what it was but I don't think I'd miss what it be, has become well so as as we're gonna close here Richie with taking a walk and talking um, what advice would you give to the current radio industry uh, leadership owners, etc., on uh, how to navigate the times that they're in. I mean, that, that is, that's, that's a $60,000 question. Um, I, I really don't know. I, I mean, i got to tell you something. I, I had, I've had offers to be on boards and do different things in consulting radio companies, and I've, I've refused them, uh, not because I didn't like the idea of making some money, but because I don't really think that I could give a value added. The business that I was in was much different than it is today. It, today, it's all based on research. You're right. It's based, you know, everything is research oriented. I mean, if you can save money and put a, a, a personality in 20 markets versus having the localization, you're going to do it to save money because your debt service is so high. I, I'm not a financial guy, and I didn't want to become one. I was an entrepreneur, and that's what I've always been and always will be. And so it'd be hard for somebody who is not a financial guy to give advice to the radio people now because they're all really financial guys. I speak to um, some of the people that work for me, and a lot of them are still at Clear Channel. And they're still in really big, you know, big jobs, and they lament about it all the time. Um, it's 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 a it's a catch-22. I mean, you can't really be creative. You have to do a perfect example. I, I can end with this, I think. <clears throat> they had this uh, situation at Clear Channel with Matt Siegel where he basically quit over the Demi Lovato thing about him, her, whatever the heck it was. And basically he was doing his shtick, which is incredible. He's a brilliant personality. He was doing what he does, and all of a sudden word from above came that he had to stop because they didn't want to touch that area. And he went ballistic. And so he talked to me about it. And I said, I think you're absolutely right. I think they're wrong. You know, but do you really want to quit over Demi Lovato? I mean, you know, you know whatever. I mean, actually, I didn't say that. I think his wife said that, but that's what I thought. Um, you know, you, you, you don't allow, you tie one of, one of somebody's hand behind them when you're telling them what to do. You're telling them what to do, not asking them to do what you want them to do. In other words, if you have a goal, what I used to love to do is just say, here's the goal. Get it. Make, make it. Achieve it. Get to it. Now they say, here's what the goal is and here's how you're going to do it. And so for that reason, I don't think I could really give much advice to anybody. I really couldn't. You know, it's funny. Mel Brooks has uh, a book out, uh, autobiography. Boy, I hope I live as long as he is. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're, you're going to uh, because of your spirit. But, you know, Mel Brooks... 
talks in the book throughout his career where this investor, bookkeeper, you know, manager would tell him, no, you can't do that. No, you don't do that. Don't yeah. do that in Blazing Saddles. And he would go, okay. And then he would just Good go deal. do it. <laughs> Well, that that might be that might be the legacy of Richie Ballsbaugh because that's what I, that's kind of what the way that I have been now, sometimes to my detriment and sometimes to you know to the good. But you know, I, I don't know if it's irreverence. I think it's just like self assurance. You know, I love the broadcasting, the radio business more than in the world. I love the fact that you could be partners with the record companies instead of being their adversaries. I love the fact that I got to know the artists, know the managers, know the uh, uh, the, the company presidents hang out with the Clive Davises and also hang out with the Stephen Tylers and also hang out with the bankers. Um, the bankers have kind of separated themselves. They think they're too good for the regular broadcasters now or the, the investment bankers. And, and quite honestly, that, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't complain about how I did in terms of selling my company. Uh, would I wish that, it would, that, the, that the business wouldn't have deregulated as it did and changed? Yes, because I would still be in it. I'd be in it to my deathbed probably. But it did, and I have no, no control over that. So here I am, walking and talking. This has been fantastic. <laughs> it's amazing to hear the insight and the behind-the-scenes, having competed against you uh, for so many years and admired the work, and I'm so grateful that you, we got to take a you, walk. You competed against me? <laughs> okay, hey, hey, just end this. Big shout-out to Wendy at Loft 68. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Richie. Thanks, Buzz. Appreciate it. Thank you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.